Every foundational doctrine of Scripture is here in this book. And we're, here we are at the end, chapter 50. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. We'll read through 6 and then pick it up in 12 through 26. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And the reason he could do that is because he was dead. And Joseph commanded his servant, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that was how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of the weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he has made you swear. Verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be alive today as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, and he in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Micar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In 1932, Sir Thomas Beecham had a dream. It was a simple dream, but difficult to execute. His dream was to start a symphony orchestra that was better than anything in America or in Europe. 
And the interesting thing about that is in, your, in London at the time, there were already two symphony orchestras, but he wanted the best. This was a man of great wisdom and learning. It is said that he could memorize a score of music a hundred pages long in a day. But like so many of us, he had difficulty with names. One night he was in the Manchester Hotel in London and he spied a a distinguished-looking woman that he knew that he knew, but he couldn't remember her name. And as he walked toward her, he remembered vaguely that she had a brother. So in order to get a a clue to her identity, he, he said to her, how's your brother doing? Is he still working at his job? The woman looked at him and said in an instant, yes, my brother is quite well. He still is the king of England. (laughs) I mean, it's one thing to forget strangers. It's another thing to forget your king. In chapter 1 of Exodus, we read, a new king came to power in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And you think to yourself, how is that possible? How could anyone not know who Joseph was? He was the savior of the nation. Without him, there would be no nation. And yet, the Bible says this new Pharaoh came to power in Egypt, didn't know Joseph. And one of the reasons is it's been 400 years Joseph and the Pharaoh that he served have been long dead. It's understandable, on the one hand, that this Pharaoh might not know of the name Joseph. Years ago, I was in a meeting with a group of people, and I mentioned something that John Kennedy did when he was president. He made a decision in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I told them. And a guy looks at me blankly and says, you know, that was before I was born. How do you expect me to remember that? Now take that logic and apply it to Pharaoh. Though Joseph has single-handedly saved the nation of Egypt and all the surrounding nations, even though without him they would be dead, starved to death, even though without him the new Pharaoh would never have come to power because there never would have been a nation, Even though the Egyptians built pyramids to remember their pharaohs and their important people, this guy forgets. Forgets Joseph? One time John Dewey, the educator, was walking down a Manhattan street with a friend. They had gone a few blocks and all of a sudden a little kid comes up and begs for money. Dewey reaches in his back pocket and pulls out a cash, a wad of cash and gives it to the boy. And then as the boy walks away, he says to his friend, you know the problem with this city? All these kids are beggars. His friend is shocked. He said, John, wasn't that your son? John looks back and says, by golly, you're right, it was him. <laughs> That's one thing to forget a king or your son, it's another thing to forget your Savior. And you know who knows that better than anyone else? The Lord. The Lord knows that we are forgetful people. 
And that's why he chooses to impress by the Holy Spirit on the writer of Genesis that fact, and it's the reason he ends this book the way he does. Doesn't end it with a genealogy. Doesn't end it with some moralistic tale. Instead, he ends it with one of the clearest pictures of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. Instead of ending with the death and burial of Jacob, Israel, he gives us the rest of the story. I mean, think about this. Once you get to chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, the primordial history is over. We actually have a historic figure, Abraham. And for the balance of the book, from chapter 12 all the way through 50, it's the story of three men. The first one is Abraham. The next one is Jacob. And the last one is Joseph. And far and away, he spends more time on Joseph than the other two. And there's only one reason for that. And the reason is plain. It's because nobody in the entire book of Genesis resembles Jesus any better than Joseph. In fact, if you want to get to know Jesus better, one of the ways to do it is to read the record of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And Paul did. Here in the last chapter of Genesis, we get a vivid portrait of Jesus. And you know why? So we don't forget. So let's dig in and take a look at it. First of all, notice in verse 24, Joseph's statement of faith. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will keep his promise, not just to you and me, but also to our grandfather and to our father. Now, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the same men who separated him from his father for nearly 40 years. These are the same guys who stripped him of his clothing and emptied him of his dignity. These are the same people, his own flesh and blood, that threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. And as we've seen, he's in prison for 10 years as a result. Through his own obedience, people turn his back, their back on him. And when he's released at age 30, he begins to deliver the world from death. You see, at every single point in his life, he's just like Jesus. He walks by faith, not by sight. In the face of his family's rejection, he continues to speak the word of faith. Now, those parallels are too obvious to be a coincidence. And when Joseph says, I'm about to die, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land as he promises to do it, it sounds just like Jesus speaking to his disciples. Remember what he does on the night in which he's betrayed? 
He broke bread. He lifted a cup. He washed their feet. And then he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. It's the same message. Joseph says, I'm about to die. Jesus says, I'm about to die. But they both say it's not the end. God will visit you. He'll bring you up out of the land to a land of promise. He will not abandon you. Death is not the end. It's just the beginning. One time Spurgeon said he was walking through an old cemetery, a country cemetery, a lot of weeds around. And he saw an old headstone. And he brushed away the weeds and all the grass. And he noticed there were only two words on the headstone. There was another marker that said the boy had been 15 or 19 years old when he died. But there are just two words. The top of the headstone, chiseled in granite, was the word Freddy with an exclamation point. Somebody would call him Freddy. And at the bottom, yes. Spurgeon said, that's a great headstone. You see, Freddy knew that God had called him. He wasn't calling him into death. He was calling him into life. When Jesus says to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, he is speaking to you and me. So how do we forget that? How do we get so caught up in the cares of Egypt that we forget our Joseph? You know, in the book of Hebrews, there's only one sentence that's used to describe Joseph, even though the writer of Genesis spends more time on Joseph than anyone else. And it's interesting. The line in Hebrews has nothing to do with his salvation of Egypt. It has nothing to do with his famous words in verse 20 of this chapter that we read, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. The only words the writer of Hebrews mentions when he's talking about Joseph are these, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of Israelites from Egypt. Of all of the words he could have used to describe this man, he talks about the last thing he does. When death was near, he spoke to his brothers about their exodus. Just like Jesus. Jesus spent a lot of time talking to us before he died on the cross, saying, this is not the end. I promise you life. Second, notice not only a statement of faith, notice the symbol of hope in verse 25. Joseph made his son, the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, this is the same assurance God gives to Abraham and Jacob at Beersheba. It's the same assurance that he gives to his father on his deathbed. It's the same assurance he gives his own brothers in the preceding verse when he says, God will visit you and you will carry my bones out of this place. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, Egypt is not your home. You have another home. It is a land I promise you. And no matter how long it takes 
you will come into the promised land. You know how long it takes? 400 years. His bones will be in a coffin in Egypt for 400 years. And during those 400 years, they'll become slaves. They will have an untold burden placed on them. They'll be beaten and bruised by their Egyptian captors. And yet every time they want to give up, every time they're tempted to believe that God has abandoned them, every time they think that God could care less about them, all they have to do is look at that coffin and say, there's coming a day when we will be free. There's coming a day when the bonds of Egypt will be broken. There's coming a day when everything that's old will become new. And you know what will mark that day? God will come and my coffin will be emptied and you'll take my bones with you. You see this? John chapter 20, John says, On the first day of the week, when it was dark, women came to the tomb, but the stone was rolled away. And Mary sees a man, he thinks she, she thinks he's the gardener, and he says, Where have you taken him? And Jesus says to her, Mary, and suddenly, it's you. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. Go to my brothers. Tell them I'm ascending to the Father, your Father, my Father, my God, your God. In other words, Mary, it's not over. You thought I was dead, but I'm not dead. And this is good news for you and for everyone else. Years ago, I had a friend in Dallas. Every letter he closed with the words, so glad the tomb is empty. I mean, isn't that better than sincerely? <laughs> so glad the tomb's empty. He, wouldn't, he could never forget it. What a great reminder. In other words, no matter what the darkness of your life, no matter what the diagnosis in your body, no matter what the burden you carry, no matter what happens with oppression and when people are dishing out nothing but dirt on you, there's coming a day. There is coming a day when every bond will be broken, every shackle will, be fall, will fall. And you know something? That's not just the sweet by and by. It's today. We're living in that day. Why? Because Jesus has defeated death. And when he returns, it'll be complete. But now because his tomb is empty, our Joseph has ascended. He presently, right now, is King of kings and Lord of lords. And nothing comes into your life that he does not ordain. He's won his victory. You say, how do you know? Because the last thing he said on the cross is, it is finished. Now there's coming a day when all of the benefits that he has gained for you will be realized by you in their entirety. But right now, you've got them. And because of his resurrection, you are already in the promised land and his kingdom is breaking out all around you. And we see evidence of that. And then third and finally, notice the show of love. Look at verse 21. This, this blows the reader away. Joseph says to these brothers of his who cost him dearly, 
who lied about him, who beat him, who sold him. He said, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now I would remind you of what prompted him to say this. It was another lie. (laughs) The same men who had stripped him and beat him and tossed him into a pit and went back to their father and said he's dead, now they fabricate another lie. They say, you know something, before dad died, he said, you better forgive us. There's absolutely no evidence that Israel said that. They're just as self-possessed as they were 37 years earlier when they sold him into slavery. In spite of all that Joseph had done for them, they are ungrateful. And they say, you know, Dad said you might, he didn't really say this, but he knew that you could really get us now if he dies. And he said, you better be good to us. They depreciate everything he's ever said and everything he's ever done. I mean, does that sound familiar? Every week, almost every week, I meet with somebody who tells me about somebody who did them wrong. Or some event in their life that they can't forget. Some shameful thing that occurred to them. And my job is not only to listen but to remind them of something that I must be reminded of almost every day. Jesus is here, and he's got one message. And the message goes something like this. After all your treachery, after all your your uh, deception after all your broken promises to me, after every time you've betrayed me, I will provide for you and your little ones. The same Jesus who saves us from death continues to do for us what he did in the very beginning, and that's to save us from starving. Can you think of a greater promise than that? You know what Jesus says to you and me? The same thing Joseph says to his brothers. I don't care where you've been or what you've done. I don't care how ungrateful you are. I don't care how far you drifted. I don't care about the skeletons in your closet. I don't care about your repetitive sin over and over. I'm your brother. It's by blood, and I will never stop loving you. That's how the book of Genesis ends, with that promise. Can you think of a better ending? Joseph says to his brothers, I will provide for you and your loved ones no matter what. You are, he doesn't say this, but I know he knows it, you're screw-ups. But I love you. In November of 1942, before the House of Commons in London, England, The prime minister stood up and he said, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. This just perhaps is the end of the beginning. 
He was talking about the Battle of Britain. They had won it. Jesus says exactly the same to us, but he's talking about the battle over death. This is not the end of my favor. It's not even the beginning of the end. This is just perhaps the end of the beginning, and that's exactly what the end of Genesis tells us. It's the gospel pure and unadulterated. That's why after the resurrection, Jesus cooked breakfast on the beach. And he said to Peter, do you love me three times? He asked him that. There's no rehash. He's more concerned about Peter's frailty than his failure. How do we forget that? How do we impose standards of acceptance on other people that Jesus never did? Seriously. How do we want our pound of flesh when Jesus sacrificed all of his? You see, the end of Genesis is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. It is perhaps the end of the beginning. For all the grace we need has been secured by our Joseph. Not a single scintilla of grace has not been supplied by him. You know, it's one thing to forget the king of England. It's another thing to not even recognize your own son on the streets of Brooklyn or, or Manhattan. It's another thing to forget your Joseph. One leads to embarrassment, the other leads to misery. Jesus says to you and me, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know what that means? I'm stuck with you. <laughs> Thank God he is. Think about that. Amen.